Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello. Welcome to my time capsule. My name's Mike Fenton-Stevens, and My Time Capsule is the podcast where various people reveal the five things they would choose from their life to preserve in a time capsule. They pick four things they cherish and one thing they would like to erase from their past. Making those revelations in this episode is the television producer and writer Dan Patterson. Dan is responsible for both the American and British versions of the improvisation show Whose Line Is It Anyway? In fact, he co-created it. He's also responsible for the long-running topical comedy show Mock the Week, with Dara O'Brien, Hugh Dennis and hordes of other famous comedians over the years. Andy Parsons, Russell Howard, Frankie Boyle, Chris Addison, Stephen K. Amos, Joe Brand, Lauren Laverne, Michael McIntyre, Sue Perkins, Sarah Pascoe, Jack Whitehall, Ed Byrne, John Oliver, David Mitchell, Andy Osho, Mark Watson, Ellie Taylor and, well, loads more. All grateful to Dan for giving them the job. And in some cases, The Break. For many years, Dan produced shows with Clive Anderson. Clive Anderson talks back for Channel 4 and then Clive Anderson All Talk for BBC One. He also produced S&M, The Brain Drain, Nevermind the Horrocks, The Peter Principle, which starred Jim Broadbent, Room 101, Fast and Loose and The Kelsey Grammer American Sketch Show. Dan's play, The Duck House, ran in the West End for over six months. So, clearly, Dan knows his comedy. But does he know what the four things he cherishes and one thing he loathes are? Well, fortunately, the answer to that question is yes. After a slight difficulty, narrowing them down to five. So, here he is to tell you them. I think you're going to love Dan. Well, I understand that you've got more than five things then on your list and you're trying to narrow it down. What have you got that you've rejected? Well, one of the things that I've rejected, which I'm passionate about, is sport. Mm -hmm. Because I love rugby, I love cricket, I love football. And, you know, I've got this theory about sport, because it always slightly baffles me why I get so passionate about it. But the theory is sport is like life, that it's incredibly important while it's going on 
And when it's over, it doesn't matter at all. That is my theory on it. But I couldn't do sport mode because I'm just too depressed. I can't find anything really funny or passionate to say about it because I love it so much. And at the moment, I generally feel disappointed by sport that I, in lockdown, things like sport become incredibly important because those are the things you look forward to all week, whether it's football or whatever. And then you just come away disappointed and it's yet another miserable (laughs) thing in this otherwise already miserable existence. I survive entirely on the fact that I've had my period of success in my life, being a Manchester United fan. Well, I'm a Manchester United fan. Well, there you are then. You see, we've had it, Dan. We've had a fair share. But I can't be okay with that. I can't think all the best parts are in the past. I've got to think we can resume this glory. And since Ferguson went, it's just been utterly miserable. Mm -hmm. And every time you think it's getting better, a bit like COVID, it then (laughs) stops getting better. So that's been utterly, utterly miserable. And the other thing which I was going to do was, you know, just sort of music like guitar. I've got a guitar I like playing and singing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've got an a cappella group called Jonah and the Wailers, which is my brother and three friends, Joe, Simon and Phil, three friends. And we go and sort of sing at various things. And, you know, that's a passion too. But I put that out because, that I, you know, I think although that is important to me, It's not one of the main four. I have now narrowed it down to four. You've managed to bring it down to four. Yes, I'm a big hoarder. I'm a big hoarder. I've never (laughs) thrown anything out. I used to keep bus tickets. (laughs) When I'd be clearing out sort of old pockets, I'd go, that bus ticket, that might be a good alibi sometime. You know, I could use that as an alibi. (laughs) So I never got rid of anything. So I just have tons and tons of stuff. So when you said, you know, these items and things, it's very hard. But I, but I've, I have narrowed it down. OK, well, let's find out what they are. Now, you can do these in any order you like. You can start with the bad one, or you can put the bad one in the middle, or we can leave that till last. But there are four things that you love and one thing you want to get rid of. So let's start with item number one. Item number one is conceptual. Mm-hmm. Angst. And it's, ba- look, I have here a little sign that says angst because my company is called Angst Productions. Yes. And I am an angsty person. You know, they say, know thyself. I know I'm full of angst and I've come to embrace it. I could have put this as the negative, mm-hmm. but in fact, it's something that I would like to keep there in my time capsule because I think it makes life interesting. Yeah. And it's very much part of me. Uh, it's the way I view the world. You know, if you can get a bit of misery or worry or disappointment into something, I think it adds to the spice of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And it's been there throughout my whole life. You know, I get it from my parents. My father, who was a wonderful man, had sort of this weird duality that he was incredibly optimistic and worried at the same time. (laughs) So we were full of worry. You know, if you went into the garden, the door would be locked behind you. If you were sitting in a room, a hand would come in and turn off the light. Mm. It was just full of things like that. To give you an example of my father, and from this you can see where I get it from, my father once woke up in the middle of the night, tried to look at the um, luminous clock, and it was all blurred. (laughs) And he went, oh, my God, this is it. I'm done. I'm I'm finished. (laughs) And he woke up my mum and said, I'm, I'm, I can't read this anymore. My, my sight's gone. I don't know. It's a brain thing or whatever. And she turned on the light and he was trying to read the clock through a glass of water. And <laughs> that's, that's kind of where I get this from. I, yeah. I, it's, it's in me. You know, we were, grew up in a Jewish family. There's a lot of angst in being Jewish. You know, the only two real things that I can recommend for being Jewish are angst 
and herring. Those are the two <laughs> big things that you get when you grow up in a Jewish family. Uh, no, I mean, look, it's marvellous. But obviously, that's where I get it from. So there are all sorts of things. For example, in our family, I'm sure this wasn't in your family or anybody listening to this, because I've never heard of anyone having this thing. If we ate melon, which was a pretty rare event in the 60s and 70s, there wasn't a lot of melon, but if we ate melon, you weren't allowed to drink for 45 minutes. <laughs> Why? Now, I don't know where this... No, no one ever said... <laughs> It was just sort of accepting that this is one of those things that happens, that if you drank, I, I don't know what they thought would happen, but everyone, this, it's a bit like that thing of you shouldn't swim if you've eaten. You know, you've got yeah. to wait half an hour. I mean, that was obviously there, that, that was there. But if it was a hot day and we had melon, I'd be going, but I might need a drink. And it was a real, it kind of ruined eating melons. Mm. And my mother had a thing, which was when she was a kid, on the Jewish New Year, you're supposed to eat a fruit that you haven't eaten all year. You're supposed to, as a sort of act of renewal. And often it's pomegranates. And she grew up in the 30s, where if you had a pomegranate, it was this shriveled, horrible little thing. Mm. But she was told that if you ate the pith, you would die. <laughs> So she used to eat a pomegranate with a pin. She would take and eat a little thing. And now, of course, pomegranates are, you just get the seeds. You mm. just get the nice bits. They've taken the pith off. <laughs> well, they're just taking the pith, I guess, with the price. But yes. either way, you know, this is what I had. And to give you an example of what my life was like, I joined the Cubs and I had a wonderful time at the Cubs. I really liked them. The Oxford 29th Brigade, I don't know if it's called Brigade, but whatever it was, mm. Oxford 29th. Very nice. Mr. Gayton was Bargeera and there was an American-Canadian who was Arcala. And I really loved it. And one week they said, you have to build a bird table. And I just went... This is impossible. This is. <laughs> I went to talk to my dad and he said, I don't know how to do this. We didn't have any tools. We didn't have any wood. It was, I can't tell you how impossible this was. It would be like amputate your own leg. <laughs> and I sort of thought about it for a while and my dad thought about it for a while. And in the end, I decided all I could do was leave. I left the Cubs. Oh, no. And I left about six months thinking, you know, every day there'd be a knock at the door at night and somebody would come in and say, where's the bird table? Have you done the bird table? <laughs> and after six months, I kind of thought, they'll have forgotten about the bird table. I'm okay on the bird table. And I went back to the Cubs and they had forgotten about the bird table. And I could carry on for a bit. I just carried on for a little bit after that. But that's what we were like. It was just... Every, I mean, I had a, I shouldn't, by the way, say I had a wonderful childhood. My parents, my father is no longer with us, but he was wonderful. My mother is a wonderful woman. We had a very happy childhood, but mm -hmm. there was this worry. There was a worry everywhere. Let me give you other ones. Um, when I travel, I never know what to take. I massively overly pack, massively, massively. I can't tell you. And I remember calling my friend Joe, who's a doctor, and saying, Joe, I'm about to go. I've got to leave now. Should I take one pair of walking boots and one pair of shoes or two pairs of shoes. <laughs> and we talked back and forth on this for ages. I mean, ages, the pros and cons of this and what would fit in. And in the end, Joe said, Dan, I have to go. I'm in the middle of an operation. <laughs> <laughs> and the 
those are the sort of things I had all the time. Yes. Um, but Dan, surely you've been one of the most successful producers on television for many years. Everything you've touched has sort of turned to gold, really. Well, well, I've, I know. Uh, I've, I wouldn't say I've, I've had my share of terrible failures too. I'm sure. But the point is, surely that comes from... In a way, you might call it angst, but I would call it being concerned about details and making sure everything's right. Well, I absolutely, I, I do worry about that. And I also do a thing where I very much in my stuff hope for the best but expect the worst. I'm very much like that because that's sort of slightly how I live my life. Mm -hmm. And so that I always say, well, what's the plan B? If it goes wrong, what do we do? I mean, I've worked with people in the past. And they said, oh, well, don't worry, it'll be OK. And you're going... Yeah, but it may not be okay. Yeah, but I think we'll be okay. I know. That's great. We all do. We all hope. If it isn't, mm -hmm. what are we going to do? I have to know that there's another route, that there's something we can do. And when you're, I'll come to it later, but when you're dealing with something like improv, where a lot of it's out of your control, yeah. boy, you work very hard to make sure the things that you do have control of, you really go through those with a fine-tooth comb. But it is that thing of expecting the worst. I mean, I mean I'll give you an example of expecting the worst, that I was once in the Amazon... And this was angst hell. We were on a floating lodge in the middle of the Amazon. <laughs> it was full of straw, it was a thatched thing. By day, beautiful. By night, terrifying. You could hear things scribbling around. But in the toilets, I'm pretty sure there was a tarantula up in the corner with a web of tarantula in the toilet. So mm -hmm. it was just agonizing. But in the middle of the night, one night, I woke up needing a pee. And I thought, I cannot go into the toilets because it's pretty dark and there's a tarantula in there and I'm terrible with spiders. I cannot deal with spiders. At all. I can't deal with little spiders. So I thought, I'm going to pee into the river. But I had read, as I'm sure you have read, <laughs> oh, that yes. in the Amazon there are these little things that sort of go up your stream <laughs> and then there's spikes that open out. And if the spikes open out, it's agony. You'll probably die, the whole thing. So I was standing there going... Is that only if you're in the water? Or can it go up your stream if you're out of the water? And I <laughs> thought, well, maybe it can. Maybe these things have sort of evolved to actually just go up a stream, not just in the water. So I thought, if I pee against the wall and then against the floor and then it trickles in, is that enough? And eventually, you know, I, I wasn't convinced that it was, but eventually... Eventually your bladder burst. Eventually it was close and I had no other option but to go and risk, take this enormous risk. <laughs> I'll just tell you one other thing, because it's something that I think will appeal to you. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's quite angst, but it's a showbiz kind of thing. I was once leaving some premiere and as I was walking along, I suddenly found myself walking next to so I won't name him, but he was a top BBC exec. And he said to me something like what's going on and I said oh hi well you know I'm here I'm I'm doing something he said well um where are you and I said well I'm back in England I've been in America but I'm back here and he said well how can I find you and I said well you've got my number and it would be lovely to get together I suddenly realized that he was on the phone talking <laughs> to his driver because I know that you used to be on trains and when somebody was talking very loudly, you'd fill in the other part of the conversation. Uh, yes, oh, you never forget anything. <laughs> and this was a completely inadvertent version of that. Yeah. Wouldn't you at some point go, sorry, Dan, I, I'm just on the phone to my driver. Let's, let's talk in a minute. But he allowed me to have this entire conversation with him. It could have gone on indefinitely, <laughs> except I think he said, well, I'll meet you in two minutes in Summing Road. And then you go... That's kind of weird. There must be something else going on here. But because the phone was on the ear away from me and it was quite dark. 
I, I can't believe you remember that about me joining in with conversations on trains. It does massively annoy me when people talk on the phone on trains. Have you never done it? I haven't done it, but I've always thought of you doing it. <laughs> My favourite was once <laughs> a solicitor dictating letters on the train in the open about clients. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. And eventually he got up and went to the toilet. So I picked his dictaphone up. <laughs> And said, oh, by the way, could you put at the bottom of all these letters that I've dictated these on a train and everybody's heard it. And I put it back down again. Brilliant. Yeah. And so his secretary said, God, you're much more direct than you normally are. That was wonderful. <laughs> but anyway, so that's my angst. And I think I would like to have the worry less. Yes. I would like to be able to take fewer rennies. <laughs> I went to university in the University of Michigan. I did a, a postgrad. I did an MA in TV and film. And I loved it. I loved Ann Arbor. It was wonderful. Mm. And a few years later, they asked me to come back and give a talk. And they put me up in this hotel. And I just had my daughter, Sally, who at that time, uh, my wife had had her, actually. I'd, I'd just been an accomplice. <laughs> and she was six weeks old. And she was in a pram. And we, we got to the hotel and there was stairs up to the lift to go to our room. So the guy said, do you want to use the differently abled lift? Right. Uh, and so we were in this lift and what turned out to basically just be a sort of platform that just starts going up. And so we were there with me and my wife and the baby, Sally, on this platform and he pressed a button and we started going up. And I suddenly looked up at the ceiling and went, there's no hole in the ceiling. There is no hole. We are going to be crushed <laughs> against the ceiling because I just assumed, you know, we get, so we started screaming and I was screaming and I was going, stop! Stop the lift! Stop! We're going to be crushed! And my wife got terribly worried. Laura got terribly worried. And she started saying, Stop the lift! And we were both screaming for about 10 or 15 seconds. My heart was pounding. And then this thing just went clunk. And I realised that it had gone up like three feet. <laughs> and the guy then opened the door to this room and said, Are you all right? And I went, Yeah. So were you shouting? <laughs> no, no. And then we realised that we were just on the height of the ground. Yes. That led you to the lift. But I was, I think it's because I'd seen Diamonds Forever where there's a fight in the lift and they're looking up because they're going to get crushed if they don't stop the lift. And I was just thinking, this thing is going to go up and we're going to get squashed against the ceiling. I'm not sure I'm doing you any favours by putting your angst in there, but I will definitely put it into the time capsule for you, Dan. Do that, that's good. As your first item, that's item number one. It's brilliant. Item number one, yes. Okay, so let's move on to item number two, or thing number two. So thing number two, well, I could say it's sort of my record collection, because I've got a lot of vinyl still, but my CD collection. Mm -hmm. But I've got those physical things. And my next one is musicals. Ah, I absolutely love musicals. Mm -hmm. I don't love all musicals, but I love musicals. So, and when I like a musical, I can see it indefinitely. So to give you an idea, there's a wonderful thing running at the moment. I think it's absolutely brilliant called Come From Away. Mm. I saw it originally on Broadway and thought it was brilliant. And then I came to London and thought they can never be as good as that cast. And they were. And I saw that at least eight or nine times. And I took lots of people along with me to see it. And it was absolutely fantastic. And I just loved it. I saw Beautiful, the musical, the Carol King musical. Oh, yeah, I yeah. saw that 12 or 13 times. Really? I, I thought that the cast, Katie Braben and Lorna Want, and all the people in it, I thought were marvellous. And I thought it was brilliant. Fiddler on the Roof was on at the Playhouse, the Trevor Nunn version. It was mm. a wonderful one in Chichester too. Yeah, with, with Omid Jalili. And Tracy Anno, which was mm. great. 
Uh, and then the one in London, which had Andy Nyman in it, was great. And I went again at eight or nine times. And that, you know, Fiddle on the Roof is a long musical. Mm-hmm. It's like one hour, 40 first half, and then an hour, second half. And it never did anything but go along. And Trevor Nunn got every bit of drama out of that piece. Mm-hmm. And I've actually became sort of slightly besotted with it and started reading about the history of Fiddler on the Roof because I, I love it. I think it's got wonderful score. But it's got a great story and it deals with a lot of issues which... I can identify with, but I think it's universal. I mean, one of the stories is that they took it to Japan Mm. and the producer of the Japanese production said to the writer of the show, tell me, does this work in America? And he said, yeah, of course. (laughs) Why do you ask? And he says, because it's so damn Japanese. Oh, wow. And I think anybody who had a sort of place where they had a hierarchy and they had strong family traditions and ties related to it and it plays in Thailand it plays all over the place and the way it came together was extraordinary because it's so bizarre that something like that could have happened at that time and I just remember that I have a wonderful story where Walter Matthau they were auditioning him to be the part of Tevye Mm. and he was doing it but apparently not very well and he suddenly stopped in the middle and said you know who'd be great in this part Zero Mostel and a voice from the back of the hall said, do you think if we could get Zero Mostel, we'd be auditioning you? <laughs> and it's a thing which came together against all the odds. Mm. And I've read about how, you know, they dropped this number, put this number in. And I think it's a perfect musical. And there are, you know, there are many that I think are great. There are some I don't like. I know that this is sacrilege because the great man has recently left us. But I'm not such a fan of Sondheim. I love West Side Story, but he didn't do the music in that. I like Sweeney Todd, but I'm a sucker for story. You know, I went to see Follies because it had a lot of people in who I think are wonderful. You know, Janie D, Joanna Riding, Imelda Staunton, people who I think are absolutely marvellous. And I thought it was incredible. You go, this guy is clearly a genius. Look how brilliantly this is constructed, the whole thing. But it just didn't quite get me in the same way as some, you know, as, I mean, I don't want to sound crass because one seems slightly higher brown than the other, but Guys and Dolls, I watch and I go, there is not a line in that, you know, which isn't funny mm-hmm. or moving the story or as a character line. There is just not one. I like it when there's humour in it. Yeah. And actually Sondheim was brilliant and he did do a lot of stuff. And, and of course he's done wonderful songs. You know, I, I'm not in any way knocking No, him. no, it's I fine. think he's a genius, but I am saying it's just not quite my cup of tea. And... The thing I would like to say, because it's one of the things that has annoyed me most in my life, is that I do not believe, as it always comes out on every poll, that Singing in the Rain is the greatest musical of all time. Everybody always says, oh, Singing in the Rain. (laughs) Now, I think the Singing in the Rain number is absolutely brilliant, Mm -hmm. as is the Good Morning number. There are some set pieces in it which are fantastic. And Gene Kelly's dancing is fantastic. But I find it massively unfunny. I think he's trying to be funny and it's just clunky. Donald O'Connor doing Make Him Laugh is genius, but it's not. It just isn't. And I always feel there's always things that sort of people go, oh, well, that is the greatest. Like everything on comedy, they always say, oh, greatest comedy film, some like it hot. And I just go, really? I mean, I love Billy Wilder. I think The Apartment is a much better film. And I go... Is it that funny to have guys in drag for that long? Yeah. Is it that funny to have Tony Curtis doing a Cary Grant accent for that? I mean, if it had been me, I'd have gone, 
let's drop that because you're going to have to keep it now going for about the next 40 minutes. And He's got to go for the whole thing right the way through. Everything has to be done like that. That's it. Perfect. So uncanny. It's like he walked into the room. <laughs> but I just go, it's a good film because Billy Wilder made great films. But mm. when people say it's the greatest, I go, have you seen Airplane? Uh, have you seen Groundhog Day? Yes. Have you seen Meet the Parents? Have you seen Life of Brian? Blazing Saddles. Blazing Saddles, absolutely. Um, Annie Hall. There mm. were all these wonderful, wonderful comedies, but it's sort of just accepted. People just accept that, no, this is the greatest one. And yeah. if I can have anything from this podcast is I want people next time it's there to go, no, it isn't the greatest comedy of all time. It just isn't. <laughs> I completely understand that you like a show with a tune and with a story. And and I suppose really in those ones that you've mentioned, there's a certain sentimentality about them as well. Yeah, I like sentimentality mm. a lot. I mean, the one that actually divides me from almost everybody else in Britain, <laughs> not America, but in Britain, is I absolutely love La La Land. Oh. And English people just don't get this at all. British people, I should no. say. British people don't get it. And I go, I think it's not only brilliant, in that the guy who made it absolutely gets how to make films. He... He takes you with him. It's, it's wonderful. But I like the fact... Yes, they're not the greatest singers and they're not the greatest dancers, but I think they're wonderful actors who are very funny. But I loved that story of the will. They, they weren't there. And the thing that really I love about it is in Singing in the Rain, which, as I said, you know, I, I, I do not knock anybody who made it because it's clearly a wonderful work. Mm. But the bit where they suddenly go into this big dance number with Gene Kelly and Sid... Is it Sid Therese? Sid Therese. That so goes on, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, I'm just... I'm going, what the hell is this doing in there? Whereas the bit they did in La La Land, which was the same idea, they managed to have the whole of a what-if sequence in it, which I thought was brilliant because I wanted them so much to get together. And in that dance stylized sequence, it's a bit obviously an homage to Gene Kelly because it's kind of like an American in Paris. Uh, Yeah, that's the one that really does go on, though. Oh, absolutely. On and on. On and on and on. But this one told the story in a mini way of what would have happened if they had met. The Mm. other version of the film that you would have liked to have seen. I thought that was great. And as I said, I'm a sucker for tunes and I'm a sucker for story. Mm -hmm. Those are the things that I like. I know it's crass. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with it at all. I'm with you on that. My favourite musical is Oliver. I love Oliver. Absolutely. I think it's just great. Absolutely great. And actually, one of the things I do love about Oliver... The film, mm-hmm. I saw it when I was about eight. I saw it when it came out. Yeah. And it was part of a wonderful day because I was staying with my aunt and uncle in Southport. And we went to Liverpool for the day. And we first of all, we had Chinese food, which was incredible because <laughs> I'd never had Chinese food. And then we went to see Oliver. And I thought it was incredible. But now looking back, what I love about it, I love the fact that Ron Moody played Fagin as a kind of lovable rogue. Mm. And I love that because in the David Lean version and in the Dickens version, it's a terrible anti-Semitic stereotype. Yes, it really is. And in fact, if you watch Ron Moody, he's a Cockney. He's a Cockney and he also Mm. has a little bit of heart. Yeah. And he is a lovable rogue. There's a very interesting book by Norman Lebrecht called Genius and Anxiety. And it's got a whole piece about Dickens having... uh, There's a Jewish woman who's bought his house and they have a whole correspondence about this anti-Semitic stereotype, and how after that he was moved by it and he then did Our Mutual Friend, which has a very positive Jewish character, and he also, in later editions, stopped saying the Jew and either said the old man or Fagin. Mm. And it just made a difference. Look, 
you know, I, I'm not asking for special treatment, but that is a particularly horrible, horrible stereotype. Well, I think when it comes to musicals, I think all Jews have a certain claim to special status in as much as there really wouldn't be the great American musical without the Jewish input. Absolutely. Great hordes of immigrants going to America in the 30s, 20s and 30s. And they take along that... Well, absolutely. There's a one very good uh, documentary called Broadway Jewish Legacy, which mm-hmm. is about how a huge number of the people, whether it was um, Irving Berlin or um, Rogers and Hammerstein, Rogers and Hart, Gershwin, of course. And there are exceptions. Cole Porter is clearly an exception. Johnny yeah, yeah. Mercer is an exception. But when you think of the population of Jews and how much they did that, and it was bringing the musicality. But this is a fascinating thing because that gets mm. to Fiddler on the Roof again was the thesis of this documentary is that Jews told stories of outsiders in society but using other groups. So that there's a lot of stuff about outsiders coming in, trying to make things work. I mean, also Simon Sharma talks about Over the Rainbow in The Wizard of Oz, written by Harburg and Arlen, I think. And it was this sort of feeling of Jews being there saying, there must be something else. There must be something over the rainbow. There must be either a messianic thing or a peace thing or a land thing, whatever it is, where there is no persecution. Mm. And whether you, you buy that or not, but there's very much that in there. And it was this whole thing. And then all of a sudden in the 60s, somebody said, well, let's do Fiddler on the Roof. Let's do it about Jews. And everybody went, well, you can't do that. (laughs) You know, other than the sort of what they call the Hadassah women, the women who would come along who do the sort of fundraising, where's your audience after that? And there was a tremendously difficult thing to get it made. And they hadn't realised the universality of it. By the way, the other great thing about Fiddler on the Roof is apparently the two writers, uh, Bock and Harnick, were there with Harold Prince. And he mm. had been there with Jerome Robbins. And they say, what is this show about? And they say, well, it's about a milkman and his daughters. And they go, no, no, that's not what it is. They say, well, it's about persecution. No, no, it's about refugees. No, no. And finally, one day, one of them just couldn't take it any longer and said, it's about the breaking up of tradition. And he said, if that's what this is about, you better write something at the beginning to tell people what that tradition is. Uh, and that gives you what I think is one of the better, you know, it's one of my favourite openings to any musical. And I love that. I love that story because, you know, you've been part of it, I've been part of it, we're all part of the creative process. And often things that you you start a journey and you end a journey in such a completely different way. And to see how these things come together, things that afterwards we all take for granted. Mm. I mean, for example, there's one of this a minor thing, it's not in the same league as that, but on whose line we always read the credits. And it came from radio. And if you listen to the pilot, at the end of the pilot, somebody goes, that was Who's Lies Anyway, produced by Dan Peasant, starring Stephen Fry and John Sessions. And after that, I think it was Stephen said, it seems kind of weird that we're improvising all this stuff. Why don't we make that the kind of prize that <laughs> they have to read out the credits in a certain style, which is what you do on radio. You do read out the credits. Yeah. And it's funny because when we did it on TV, the exec at the time said, what's happened to the reading the credits? And I went oh, I didn't think you'd like that because it doesn't, it's a weird thing to do on TV. You don't read credits. Said, no, I want that. It was Seamus, what was Seamus's? uh, Cassidy. It was Seamus Cassidy who said Mm. that. Wheels within wheels, Seamus Cassidy, the man who uh, devised quiz shows with Dara O'Brien. Absolutely. Another connection. There you are. One degree of separation, (laughs) as they say. That's all it is. Okay, lovely. I can't wait to have all those musicals in the time capsule for you. So we'll move on to item number three, Dan. 
Right, let's all catch our breaths while we take a short break for some adverts. We'll be back with Dan straight after these messages, as they say stateside. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome back. Ready for some more from the brilliant Dan Patterson? Good, because here are the rest of the things for his time capsule. Item number three. I get this from a little Roberts radio that I was given when I was about 11. And my family is going off on a long journey in a car on a bank holiday Monday. And we don't have a radio in the car. This is probably about 1970. We didn't get a radio in the car till I think, 1973. (laughs) But I've got my Roberts radio there with the antenna up. And on this bank holiday Monday, they started playing comedies. They were doing one after the other. And one of the comedies that came up was The Goons. And it was The Goons, The Spanish Suitcase. (laughs) And I listened to this, and this was an absolute epiphany for me. And in those days, you couldn't record it. You sort of had your one-off chance to listen. Mm -hmm. I listened to this thing, and it was so funny and so unexpectedly funny. There's a bit where they all land in prison. There's a sort of this violin music, and the voice comes over, and it's uh, it's Neddy Seagoon and Harry Seagoon saying, 93 years went past. We'd almost given up hope. <laughs> Our only recreation was to stand on each other's shoulders and stare through a tiny crack in Eccles' head. <laughs> and to me, the sheer surrealism of this thing, um, first of all, it takes you in one direction and goes in another, but just that surrealism, the genius of Spike McGlynn, I think he wrote that one actually with Eric mm. Sykes, and I think the ones he wrote with Eric Sykes do have slightly better stories to them. But it's so full of wonderful lines. And then from that, I went and I've got at home a little moth-eared moth. I've got, no, I've got a little moth-eared <laughs> goon show scripts. And the goon show scripts and me and friends, for those, I did it twice, one with a friend of mine called Jonathan May when I was about 
11 at this time, 10 or 11. And then later on with my friend Nick, when I was about 14 or 15, and while other people were going boozing and doing all this stuff, we would sit in his living room with a tape recorder recording the Goon Show script. So we would do the voices. And I remember one of them, which is the batter putting hurler of Bexhill on sea. There's a lot of stuff where they're being bombed by the Germans. So you need stuff falling into the water. Yes. And all we could think of was to drop a stone into this cistern of his loo which was very echoey. So this sort of plop thing that happened all the way through there, we would use bits of sound effects from Monty Python records. I remember we needed a bell ringing and there's a sketch where Eric Idle goes, if you hear this ring, it's the fire alarm. And we just got the ring, but we couldn't quite get it enough. So we'd always have ring, it's the fire it's the fun. And but it was so wonderful to do this and play it back and listen. Yeah. And I think that had a massive effect on me. And then my parents took me to see the Cambridge Footlights mm-hmm. uh, because we grew up in Oxford and the Footlights used to go through Oxford. And the first one I saw was a thing called Chocks. That had Clive Anderson in it and Griff Rhys-Jones, Jeff McGiven. It was a marvellous cast. And again, I went, there can be nothing funnier than this. This is, not only is this... <laughs> The greatest thing, but I this think is, Griff would agree with you. I'm sure Griff would. He was great. I also, by the way, I later obviously ended up working with Clive. But at that time, Clive was this long-haired guy <laughs> who I thought was Scottish because he did a whole piece where he was uh, like a Scottish stand-up. Yes, and I remember it well. They came down from the hills, their claymore in one hand, a sword in the other hand, and a dagger clenched between their teeth with their famous war cry. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, it was. And he said, didn't he say something like, I've got a friend in oil, a small way, very small. He's a sardine. (laughs) But I saw the footlights and I thought, that's what I want to do. So my next thing really is comedy. I think comedy is the way, more than angst, really, that I view the world. And I think there is a way of viewing the world. And I think if if you're in comedy and humour is important to you, that's how you see the world. Obviously, there's a lot of serious stuff to get it there. Mm. But when I'm doing Who's Line, when we're doing Mock the Week, whatever, people, the wonderful stand-ups, the wonderful people we have, Dara, who you mentioned, all the people are spinning their stuff. I absolutely love it. And Mm. um, I went to America. I didn't really do much Mm. comedy at university, but I went to America and I was at Michigan, and then I stayed on for three years at Northwestern. At Northwestern, they had a show called The Meow Show, and The Meow Show was an improv show, which was quite good at sort of a lot of people who, I think Julie Louis-Dreyfus, Craig Bierko, a lot of people came from that. Mm. And I auditioned for it. They auditioned about 100 people over two days, and it came down to the last 10, and I was in that 10, but they only chose eight So I missed it by that. And I've always wondered how different my life would have been had I got in as a performer. I mean, Uh, Poorer, I I think. Poorer, absolutely. Maybe Mm -hmm. happier, less stressed. (laughs) I would look younger. Um, But it's interesting, Dan, that you've talked about improv and that's been such a big part of your life. And it's interesting that a man who talks about his angst and his concerns all the time, is this going to work, that you'd go into an area of comedy that is so well, in a way, risky. Absolutely. And uh, if I could choose one thing that does not suit my temperament, Mm. it's absolutely that. And even now, you know, I think I've got... We were doing some recordings at the end of the year, hopefully. And even now, I am having sleepless nights over who's line. Mock the Week 
has a certain amount of stress, but you just rely on the people there. You know they're going to be great. Mm. The big thing about Mock the Week is having to rely on the news, and that's very uncontrollable, and you don't know what's going to happen. And usually when we're on, there's either pestilence or disaster <laughs> or some terrible thing the minute we're on, and it's just impossible. But improv is absolutely terrifying. But I didn't get into this production, but two years later, a woman called Liz Kruger, who I was a friend of, suddenly became producer of this show. And she asked me, and I'm not quite sure why she did, if I would direct it. So I directed an improv show. I took it to Edinburgh. And about that time, I'd come back to England to do some exams. And an old friend of mine who I've been at university with, Jeremy Bowen, had said, have you seen this ad for radio producers in light entertainment? And I would never have seen this, but I applied And I didn't get it immediately. They gave it to two people, I think Mark Robson and David Tyler, who were already in the department. But they did say, you were third. If another thing comes up during the year, we'll let you know. Mm. And I was kind of stunned by this because, you know, at each point I was amazed that I got through again, you know, and whatever. (laughs) And I hadn't done anything professional. And they said, have you ever taken a show to Edinburgh? And I said, no, I haven't. So in the meantime, I then took this Meow show. We raised, I don't know, 25 grand, brought it to Edinburgh, did the show in Edinburgh. In the meantime, I'd got the job in radio right. because I think very sadly one of the producers had died and a gap came and I came back to England, got the job. And I cannot tell you even... Oh, it made me well up. Even at the 40 years that have passed, the excitement of getting that letter from the BBC. Mm. Because I'd so wanted it for so long. And to get into this marvellous broadcasting outfit, this wonderful institution, which cared about programmes and cared about things that were you put on and had talented people and usually, I have to say, lovely people. Mm. And to get into that corridor. And one of the things, Mike, which also is a link to you, is because I was living in America at the time, I hadn't been listening to Radio 2 or Radio 4. I didn't know what the comedy was. And I said to them, can you send me some stuff that's on? Because I need to listen to this. I want to find out what you're doing. They sent me a thing called The Wow Show, which I thought was great. I think that was Steve Frost and... Mark Arden. Mark Arden. Steve Frost, Mark Arden. A thing called In One Ear, which had Nick... Nick Wilton, Clive Mantle, yeah, Helen Ledra. Helen Ledra, which I also thought was wonderful. And two episodes of my favourite thing, which was Radioactive. And I'd never heard Radioactive, but I listened to this stuff. One of them was the Travel Special, and one of them was the Wimbledon Special. And I listened <laughs> to those two things, and I just was in hysterics. I thought it was just marvellous. There's the line to this day, which is one of my favourite lines ever, where they said, and now the man they call Mr Wimbledon, Dan Wimbledon. And I just thought... <laughs> It was just brilliant. Yeah, Angus and obviously Jeffrey, the mm. late great Jeffrey Perkins, who we all miss enormously, and who was incredibly, probably, I think, the equal most talented producer I've ever known, him and John Lloyd. Mm. And I listened to this stuff and I got in and it was so utterly exciting. Going to Edinburgh, where I'd been the person always when there'd been shows, I'd been standing at the door and wanting to chat to people, not to get autographed, but just to chat, to Mm. feel you were part of it by just chatting. And suddenly those people wanted to be on, whether it's called the BBC's cut-off at the Fringe or BBC's aspects of the Fringe. And I loved my time in radio. And in a lift one day, 
I was trailing Paul Mayhew Archer, who I also think is a great producer, a man with a wonderful sense of humour, brilliant, incredibly nice. Mm. I genuinely think one of my heroes. Yeah. And um, he was doing a thing called the Delve Special with Stephen Fry. In a lift going up three floors, I managed to pitch two shows to Stephen Fry, <laughs> both of which he said yes to. One was Saturday Night Fry, which we then did with Hugh Laurie, Emma Thompson, Jim Broadbent. Mm. And the other one was Whose Line Is It Anyway? Good Lord. And from that moment, you know, my career happened. And I always say to people something that was said to me, and it's a good thing to hold on to when you've been rejected and rejected and rejected, and I had tried and tried and tried. Somebody had said, if you are good enough, you will make it because there are not enough good people. Everybody is looking for good people. And the other thing they said was the three Ps, which was persistence, practice, and professionalism. So the persistence is you don't give up. There's a lot of talented people who don't keep going a lot. Mm -hmm. Practice, you know, I saw Joe Brand start off and be quite good, and she did it quite a lot and became wonderful. Mm -hmm. You've got to keep doing it. If you're a writer, you write and you will get better. Yeah. And professionalism means you don't say F off to the first person who criticizes you. you <laughs> when you start off, you have to be the nicest person in the world. And I was. I mean, I remember saying to my parents in my office in the BBC, they are paying me to do this and I would do it for free. In fact, not only would I do it free, I would pay to do it. Yes. And it was wonderful. But almost immediately I got out of radio and got into TV because of whose line went to TV and hat trick with a company I went to. And, you know, I've been doing comedy ever since. But I, I, mean, I remember as a five-year-old reading a book and at the end it went, it had all been a dream. And I went, wow, what a great twist. That's just incredible. <laughs> Who'd have thought of that? And you realise that things that become clichés the first time are exciting. And I remember going to see The Art of Course Acting when I was about 18 and thinking that was incredible. There's a thing called One Big Blow, which I think then became um, 784. They did Flying Pickets. Yeah. And this was, you know, just these wonderful things you could see at Edinburgh. In one wonderful year, there was Bouncers and Up and Under in the same mm. year. And seeing this stuff and just going, that's what I live for. Finding stand-ups who you think are wonderful. Actually, John Cleese in his autobiography, which I would recommend highly, says, it's not that difficult to be quite funny and it's not that difficult to be satirical, but it's very difficult to be very funny. And when you see people who absolutely, you know, whether it's Billy Connolly, Monty Python, whether it's Robin Williams or Steve Martin, the people that absolutely have you killing yourself laughing. That, to me, <laughs> yeah. in my time capsule, I want laughter. And I, I, I know that sounds good, but it's so difficult in the world at the moment. And I think mm. if you can find comedy, if you can find a voice, something that tickles you, makes you laugh and takes you... You know, we're talking about musicals and there is a transformational thing of music. I think there's a transformational thing of comedy too. And I think we all feel incredibly much better after laughing at something. And it's an important thing for me. Now, it is crucial, I think, comedy. And you have never given up on searching for new people. That's what I think has probably given you your longevity as a producer, is the fact that you get that joy of finding somebody new. 
Well, we do get the joy of finding someone new. We also get the misery of somebody we love leaving. <laughs> but, <laughs> but we do. I mean, it's wonderful that, you know, if Hugh has been there all the way through and is great. Mm. But there was a sort of Frank, Frankie who I just think is utterly brilliant. If you wanted somebody to do one-liners for your life, you would get Frankie Boyle. Yeah. Uh, Russell Howard, who was an extraordinary, charismatic comedian who was playing 100 seaters when I first met him. And I thought he was incredibly quick and had a wonderful personality and a great, intelligence and then you know Andy Parsons was a great political voice on the show mm. Chris Addison just so clever and funny and then with all the people that have come through whether it was Michael McIntyre or David Mitchell or Mickey Flanagan Dara who you mentioned all the people Ramesh Ranganathan who I think is marvellous Rob Beckett Josh mm. Widdick, and we had all of those in one go. Ed Byrne, who's been around yeah. endlessly. We had Ed Gamble, who I think is a tremendous comedian. Reese James, plus Angela Barnes, Maisie Adam, Sarah Pascoe. Yeah. But all those great people, uh, you know, James A. Caster, Greg Davis, I think is is just so wonderfully naturally funny. I always thought James A. Caster was like a sort of young Peter Cook, that the way he played with words took you into a place you couldn't imagine. There was a wonderful thing. One of my favourite things I did with Clive was we did the Clive Anderson shows for many years. And near the end of it, we did a Peter Cook, Clive Anderson special, which was Clive's idea, where we had Peter Cook come on and play four different characters. Mm. There was a moment we had to go on and try on the uniforms of the different (laughs) costumes. And when he put these on, he started kind of swaggering and skipping around. I thought, and 40 years and the drunkenness fell off him. Uh, and you went, this is what that guy was like when he was at Cambridge and then he would did Beyond the Fringe of the Establishment. That wonderful, charismatic, beautiful, comedic presence there. And there's one bit in it where he just takes you by changing one word. There's a character he played where who'd been abducted by aliens and he's sort of that kind of character, the biscuit <laughs> kind of guy. And Clive said, has that experience changed you? And he said, well, Clive, it's only when you have an experience like that with people like those, that you realise how insignificant they are. (laughs) Brilliant. I think we're very lucky. I think the two great comedy traditions, certainly in my experience, are the American one with those wonderful long-running series going back to Bilko and Lucy and the Honeymooners, and then Cheers, Fraser, All in the Family, Friends, Seinfeld, Curb Your Enthusiasm. Taxi. Oh, Taxi. What a tradition. What a gift that we all have. Dan, I'm, I'm going to put comedy into your time capsule, but only because, you know, you seem to know so little about it. <laughs> so true. So true. <laughs> and that's a very fair point. <laughs> in that case, it goes in there, and I hope it produces endless laughter for you. Thank you, yes. I'd love that. OK, we're on to number four. Number four is The Beatles. And number five? (laughs) Yeah, I'm passionate about The Beatles. I've always loved their music. I've got an older sister, Deb, and she used to get... She's six years older than me, and she got their records. She, in 1966 or 65, 67, I I was five, six, seven. Mm. And I remember listening to Revolver the first time. I remember listening to Rubber Soul the first time. I was sort of there when they came out. And Mm -hmm. then having the music through my teenage years. Obviously, I love music, although I tend to get into things about 10 years after everybody else. I remember people loved Joan Armour Trading and then I liked it 10 years later. (laughs) But the Beatles have been with me all my life. And I've got a lot of their pictures 
And so I would take my pictures of the Beatles. And I've always thought, if in the unlikely event that Paul McCartney ever came round to our house, he'd go, <laughs> this is a bit of a shrine. It's a bit weird. In fact, the only time I ever nearly met Paul McCartney was at George Martin's funeral. Paul McCartney was there. I was talking to Wix afterwards. Wix is the pianist, the keyboard player in his band. Mm. And Paul McCartney was making a beeline for Wix. And I was wearing my Beatles tie. <laughs> and he saw this Beatles tie and immediately turned around and walked oh, off again. No. And I thought, I've blown it. I, oh. I met Paul McCartney once on a lift at Wembley going to a football match. And he was on an escalator, not a lift, an escalator just in front of me. And I thought... Um, Should I trip him up? <laughs> no, no, I thought I've got 10 seconds to say everything about me that might... Because I know he seems to... He's apparently a fan of Who's Line and he's apparently a fan of Mock the Week. Mm. And I just sort of said those things and said, oh, by the way, I love your work. And he was gone. Also, my cousin's cousin was Brian Epstein. So I always wanted to use that as an icebreaker, but I've never had a chance to use that. That would work. Don't you think? Yeah. But I, I just love them. And, I, and of course, now there has been this thing on, which is the get back thing that Peter Jackson, who, who's incredible, has done this incredible mm. thing of tidying up that footage. And it's like the First World War stuff he did. It brought those people to life. And this mm. stops being history. It kind of feels like it's a reality show that's going on today. Yes. And what I love about them is, A, the creativity. Look, you work in creative field. I work in a creative field. You admire creativity. And the Beatles, whatever it is, had it. Yeah. And Paul comes in and starts strumming his bass and you see Get Back happening in front of you, all those at once. And in 14 days, to have that amount of work coming through, that amount of great songs. But I also love the fact that they have endless toast and cups of tea. You know, today <laughs> there'd be a sushi chef and there'd be people coming with an enormous buffet and all this stuff. And then, you know, the whole thing has sort of got rather nasty chairs and mics sort of gaffer tape together. <laughs> and it's all a little bit kind of tinker toy. You know, obviously it isn't George Martin's clearly a genius. And what I loved about it was that when you look at the film Let It Be, it was very much made as a kind of the Beatles have broken up. It's a lot of bad feeling there was some of that stuff. You saw George getting frustrated and walking out, but you also saw the sheer joy. You saw mm. the sheer joy of them being together. You saw Paul sort of, he listens to John, and you can see how that worked, and you can see how they sparked off each other. Or when Ringo's playing Octopus's Garden, and George says, how about if you do that, you do that, and immediately improves it as a song. And when they started just playing, you sort of sit back and go, Oh, my God. And then Billy Preston comes in. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine being Billy Preston? You turn up to say hello and they say, do you want to be in the group? And he goes, yeah. And I love the fact that this man who's got incredible film franchise mm -hmm. has taken the time to do the First World War footage mm -hmm. and colorized it. And the fact that he's done those things and he's taken the time to spend three years working on this stuff, stuff I love. And that moment when they're on the roof... And people opposite. Okay, and what a wonderful snapshot into England in 1969. Yeah. That you see the types and going, oh, yeah, it's wonderful. And then the guy coming out and going, oh, I think it's ridiculous. I'm trying to work. And I have a horrible <laughs> feeling, Mike, that I would have been that guy going, do you mind? I'm trying to work in here. And, um, and to see those people on the other rooftops looking at this stuff, going, that's the Beatles at the height of their power. Mm. They would never perform again together. And I've always wondered, Here's my thing to leave you with on this subject. Mm -hmm. You've got Lennon and McCartney, who are two of the geniuses of music 
in any era, I think, and two of the greatest songwriters of all time grew up not far away from each other in the same city at the same time and met. Now, is this lightning striking or could that happen more often if other geniuses met another genius, but they never did meet? Mm. But if they had met, something incredible would happen, whether it was the drive, whether it was the combination, whether it was the luck, whatever those things happened to get you into that place. Yes. Would that be happening more? Was that just an unbelievable coincidence, which gave to me the greatest rock phenomenon there has ever been? Or could it happen more if things landed slightly differently? And you also go, had they not broken up at that time in another three or four years? You know, I feel this about George Best. Are we blessed because he had those amazing 10 years or do we feel cheated that we didn't have another five? And with the Beatles, we have that wonderful body of work. Could there be another five? Because Paul did do great stuff with Wings, Mm. but... Had they all stayed together for another four years, what would the world have had and what would we have had? And maybe we should just be glad that there was so much wonderful stuff, which, by the way, still stands up. There's still generations coming to it. You know, for that to still feel that fresh and that different and that tuneful. Actually, Howard Goodall, who's, you know, another hero of mine, he sort of says you get Mozart, who's incredibly creative, and then you get Schubert, who wrote, he said, something like 800 songs, of which 100 are great. And then until then, the next people who do that many melodic tunes in that wonderful way to that extent are the Beatles. Yeah. You know, you do get Irving Berlin and you do get Gershwin, but to have that many that utter, utter hits at that level. And, you know, I, I feel privileged that I have grown up in a time when the Beatles shared the earth with me. Or mm. I, I should say less <laughs> egotistically, I shared the world with them. <laughs> Well, the Beatles, God bless them, and uh, they will never fade, I'm sure, but they go into the time capsule. Well, your photographs go in, which will be enough to remind you of everything else that you know. Absolutely. So that's your fourth item. So we've got one more to put in, Dan, which is something you want to reject from your life. Yeah. Well, the thing I want to reject from my life is a thing I'm loosely calling modern crap, (laughs) which is all the stuff that I'm useless at because I have no as you saw from before we started this thing, I can't do technology. (laughs) And it's things like, I love traveling, but I get very irritated by everything to do with traveling. So if you go on EasyJet, you get speedy boarding, because I always want to sit down there because I want to be on the plane first. So I have my little bit of hand luggage (laughs) above my head because I need the Rennie and I need the sleeping tablets and I need the Nurofen and I need all the stuff, my book, maybe a script, whatever. I want it there. And you get a speedy boarding and then you get onto the bus. And then the bus goes to a plane. You're going, right, I just spent 20 quid getting onto a bus first. And now everybody's <laughs> piling off this bus and getting on before me anyway. Or you're, you're sitting there in economy and the seat and the person in front of you goes back. I never want to sit back because I haven't got a great back. But the person in front of me always puts the seat back so you have absolutely nothing. Or you go to a hotel. In America, they've come up with this genius thing of shower curtains that are curved. But in many places, you go to a hotel where they're just straight down. And when you turn on the shower, there's a gust that comes in. So you suddenly have this horrible shower curtain on you. So if you're somebody like me who lives with angst, this is the worst stuff. Or you're abroad. I've had this a number of times where mm. you get a call and you go, hello, and they say, this is your bank. We need to talk to you urgently. 
But before we do that, some security questions. <laughs> and I never get these questions right. And they say, well, we can't talk to you. Sorry. And you're just going, well, what? You just rang me. You <laughs> rang me to tell me something bad. Has the house burnt down? Have I lost everything? What's going on? I always, by the way, just assume the worst has happened in anything. Anytime <laughs> yes. I'm ill. Woody Allen has a very good line, which applies to me, which he says, uh, I don't think I'm ill all the time but I think whatever I have is going to kill me. Yeah. You go and have an MRI scan, and then you say to the person doing the scan, it's all right, isn't it? I mean, did you see anything? It's all right. And they go, I'm afraid I can't answer that. And then you go, oh, no, this means I'm dead. Or, you know, codes. I never know what my code is. Or you're in boots, you go and buy something, but there's nobody actually serving. You can't work the machine thing, mm -hmm. or you try and ring someone, but nobody answers the phone. You just have to go online. Even if I get someone to explain it, I fall on the first hurdle. The first hurdle of this thing is, can you do this? No, I can't do this. So now I can't renew this. I can't pay this. I can't do it. And mm. it's all that stuff. And I remember somebody, I think it might be my dad saying that he saw a woman an old woman coming to automatic doors, but they were opening the other way. And next to them were automatic doors opening her way. And she could not work this out, to be in a world where you couldn't go through a door. And when I hand my phone to somebody or something, they just instantly do it. It seems yep. like, and I just, oh, my kids can text so quickly. I always feel, particularly if I'm doing it in front of them, that I'm in slow motion. <laughs> and my father always called it a stereo and a gramophone, and a wireless. <laughs> and now I sort of feel I've taken up that mantle. And, you know, Andy Hamilton, who we both know, I think is a wonderful producer, still writes his stuff by hand. He puts mm -hmm. ruled lines and writes his stuff by hand. And I do that too. When I'm writing any script, I write longhand because my typing is not good enough that I, I have to concentrate on the typing. Whereas when I'm writing longhand, that obviously that's a natural thing. So I just let the whole subconscious come out with that. Yeah. You know, the, the voice recognition has been a good thing. I love the fact that I spend my whole time on YouTube going, who won the Eurovision Song Contest in 1969? Who came second? <laughs> Dara had a wonderful line on Mock the Week. Dara said, it's quite hard these days to get zero with the system. It's really difficult. He said, you'd have done just as well if you'd have sent in Martin Bashir singing Candle in the Wind. <laughs> I love the fact we have on tap all of this stuff because I think it is great we have choice, but I also feel that what we had, which was wonderful in a different way, was when something was on, whether it was Morecambe and Wise or the two Ronnies, everybody at school the next day had seen it. Mm. I don't knock choice at all. I, as I said, I, I love it. I think it's fantastic. You can sit down at night and go, am I going to watch Succession or am I going to watch Breaking Bad or Mad Men, whatever it is. But I do think it was a great unifying factor that we all watched the same things and laughed at the same things and had that in common mm. and could talk about it. Because in this country, in America, we're in a very divided society. And one of the things that I think still is the case with the BBC, but not like it was, was that it was a wonderful unifying factor. And it was something that everybody watched together. Mm -hmm. And obviously, different people have different tastes. Some people want to watch Last Night at the Proms. Some people want to watch a comedy panel show. They appeal to very different audiences. But there were things that transcended that, whether it was Victoria Wood, whether it was Mr. Bean, I don't know, whether it was David Attenborough, whether it was the Foresight Saga or I, Claudius, or The Singing Detective. And I wouldn't want to go back to a place where we don't have the choice. But I do think you can look back and say, even without that, 
there were great positives. It was a wonderful thing. Mm. You know, I, I, I guess I, one thing I'd love to, even within this angst uh, and anger at modern times, I want to think that there's still, for young people coming through, and even for us, there is magic. And sometimes you can see magic. You can see something that you hadn't seen before. We all get jaded. It's a difficult world to be enthusiastic in. But there is still magic around. There was the magic of our childhood of everything being new and wonderful. It's the first time you've seen it. Colours were more intense. Mm. Feelings were more intense. You cared more. You laughed more. You worried more. All of this was first time or when you were passionate teenagers. And I sort of would love in the time capsule that the sense that although we're banishing it, we can still take the magic from the wonderful things that still do happen and that we all care and share. Okay, I'm putting it in there. And that's going to clear your life. My word, where's all the angst gone? That's it. Now I'm going to be going, how did I do? I mean, was that all right? I shouldn't have said that. I should have. (laughs) It was absolutely brilliant, Dad. Basically, I could have sat here the whole time just nodding my head and laughing, and I needn't say a word. So I apologise for the interruptions. (laughs) Not at all. I'm truly grateful to be asked, because usually when you're behind the camera, you don't get asked. I've enjoyed it, and it was also interesting to make me think, and it just made me go... Those are the things that have really made me tit and I would want to hold on to. There's so many things I could have put in, things that have meant a lot to me. My good friends, my family, my children, Louis, Sally, Rafi, the other people that have been important in my life. Wonderful. Thanks, Dan. Thanks very much, Mike. Cheers. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Dan Patterson. I hope you enjoyed this episode enough that if you haven't done already, you decide to subscribe to this podcast so we can send you all new episodes as they're released. We have some great guests coming up and lots of episodes already available. Over 170, actually. We'd also be very grateful if you would click on five stars and rate the show. No pressure. And don't forget some podcast providers, such as Apple, even allow you to write your own review with words like thrilling and genius and stoner crows, this is good, in it. So feel free to be as effusive as you like. You can keep up to date with what's going on with My Time Capsule if you follow me or at MyTCPod on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. And you can listen to the theme tune anytime on Spotify. It's by Pass the Peas Music. This cast-off production for Acast was skillfully produced by John Fenton Stevens. And that's it. What larks, eh? It's good to feel part of something hopefully worthwhile. My life's not always been this much fun, you know. I mean, even at school, I sort of knew I was different from the other five-year-olds. Well, I was 11 for a start. Look, I won't have sighing at my jokes, thank you. I may look like an idiot and sound like an idiot, but don't let that fool you. I am an idiot. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.